Hello and welcome to this episode of Better Off Red. My name's Pip Adam and this is episode 83. Um, this um, episode is a discussion <laughs> between myself, um, Branava Nangalangam and Kirsten McDougall. Um, it's um, a recording, a live recording of an event that took place at Unity Books, um, the wonderful Unity Books in Wellington, um, just an amazing bookshop, highly recommend getting along there. Um, this um, event took place on the 23rd of September this year, 2020. Um, Bran and I both had novels come out sort of in the, um, I don't know what you'd call it, was it the height or was it the nadir? Um, but in the um, middle of um, Aotearoa's lockdown. Um, so this event was sort of put off a couple of times, but um, is incredible and I'm very grateful very grateful that we got to do it and I'm very grateful to Kirsten McDougall who facilitated the conversation and was amazing as always. Kirsten's an amazing writer and also a really amazing reader. Um, Yeah, it it was a really great discussion and I enjoyed it a great deal and um, yeah, I'm very grateful to Unity Books um, and everyone who came along and thank you all very much and I hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks heaps. I like it. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you all so much for coming along today. We've been really looking forward to this. And today we're lucky enough to have two of Aotearoa's most powerful novelists who've chosen to write about significant areas of our society which until recently might have remained quite unrepresented. Um, so please welcome um, Brandon Nanalingham, author of Spricks. Of Spicks here, um, and published by Lawrence and Gibson. Uh, Pip Adam, author of Nothing to See, published by Victoria University Press. And today, here we also have Kirsten McDougall, who'll be chairing, Kirsten's the publicist at BDP, Kirsten will be chairing this event. So, thank you all for being here, it's amazing, and thanks everyone for coming to us on Kilda. There'll be um, some time for some questions. <coughs> But later on, that Kristen will signal back for us. Yeah, thank you. Cheers. Well, thanks, Mary. Kia ora It's wonderful to see you here today. And I'm really excited to be here to talk to um, Pip and Bran, two authors whose work I really admire and get excited about. Um, and it was a total pleasure to dip back into both of your books again and um, they're both books that reward rereading which is which was really cool things I picked up second time around that I didn't first time um, so I'm gonna um, talk to both of them kind of separately but I thought to start one of the things we talked about was both of you giving like an elevator pitch to the audience yeah, about your book. So I always think it's a good test for an author as well. <laughs> so there you go. Um, Pip, off you go. Tell us, tell us, give us your pitch for nothing to see. Um, okay, I'll try. Um, <laughs> uh, nothing to see is a novel about how we care for ourselves and how we care for each other. And it's set over um, three kind of timelines separated by 12 years each. And it is interested in uh, God, 
alcohol, sex work, and surveillance. Awesome. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My book is about a private boys' school attempting to cover up uh, a horrific violent act. Um, It is about how reputation trumps morality, um, and it is not intentionally defamatory. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. Yeah, good. Have you had to say that a bit? Uh, a lot of people think they're in it. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Right, so um, I thought we'd start with you, and I'm going to... I spoke to both Pip and Brandon just to see if there were things that they would like to talk about or they don't get asked. So we've got a couple of areas to cover off there, and then, um, then my questions as a reader. But I wanted to start um, with you, Pip, and I'm just going to read... One of the things that you love to write about, and I think I feel like it's a kind of abiding obsession really throughout all of your books, and um, that's work, and um, and it's very prevalent in this book as well. And I was really struck by this um, part at the beginning beginning of the book, partly because it reminded me of me. But so we've got Peggy and Greta, and this. The first section is set in 1996 and Peggy and Greta um, are trying to stay sober and they don't they don't really have jobs, they don't really know what work is. And so they're um, they've gone to the Dole office and they're looking at the job seeker board. Um, there were no jobs for Peggy and Greta. They just liked looking at the cards because they didn't know that some of the jobs even existed. Most of what they knew about jobs was from Richard Scarry and things they saw on TV. And I, yeah, and I love that, that mention of Richard Scarry. Well, one, because it's a reference that we probably both know because we're a similar age. But um, also, um, that's how a lot of people find out about work, right? Through books and telly. But um, do you want to talk a little bit about how work operates in the book? Um, because there's, there's all sorts of work. There's like legitimate work. There's, there's work that... that isn't really even seen as work and there's also the work of actually learning how to feed yourself like there's a lot of information about learning how to cook and but yeah do you want to talk a bit about why you keep returning to work um yeah um uh, i'm really interested in (coughs) the exchange of labor for money um i'm quite interested in um yeah, the power structures of work as well. And I'm really interested in the work that we legitimize, like you said, and the work that we don't legitimize and the work that we pay for and the work that we don't pay for and the work that pays tax and the work that doesn't pay tax. And um, I, I'm just I'm just really interested in it and constantly obsessed with it. Also, it's, it's something that I think I know, um, you know, like work is extremely um, highly thought of in my family. Um, um, no one in my family has been to university or anything like that. And my father constantly says that he wishes I'd go back to hairdressing and get a proper job, um, you know, and like um, thinks that university is a bit of a bludge, you know. And um, so it's, a you know, like sort of it's that interesting thing where a lot of myself, you know, coming to myself has sort of happened in work, you know, like... Um, what is it to be financially independent? Um, you know, what, what is it to not be financially independent? And yeah, like, yeah, I, I think that's why I'm interested in it. 
Do you want to talk a little bit about like what Peg, Peg and Greta do? Because what's really interesting about the novel is how you've set it over these um, three different time periods, 12 years apart. And so, of course, work changes because the internet arrives. Do you want to talk about what they do and how that changes? Because yeah. that's very interesting, I think. Yeah, I think, I think one thing I'm really interested in at the moment is this idea that there really isn't a way to get... I'll probably get this wrong because I don't understand it because it's quite complex economics and I'm a bit slow. But like this idea that we can't work our way out of poverty anymore, you know what I mean? Like no, no one works themselves rich anymore. You need to inherit land to get rich. You know, you need to inherit money to get rich. And that's why I thought these time frames were really interesting. You know, um, the main work that Peggy and Greta are involved in when we first meet them is sort of um, having sex for money. Um, then they get a volunteer job, which you know, and they, and then, um, you know, they retrain at university and um, find out that they're not as good at what they thought they were as they, you know, something else. And, um, and just that idea. And then as we move into the later parts of the book, we moved in, into that, I don't know what it's called anymore, but I used to call it like the gigification of work, you know, like this idea that, um, we have these um, portfolio careers and you know like the, this this idea that there's an amount of freedom that comes with that but not a lot of freedom so um it's this interesting thing where i'm not sure how you get out of that you know what mm-hmm. i mean like i'm just not sure without um inheriting money or winning money or i'm just not sure how you get out of that so it was quite interesting to look at that over a long period of time i think because mm-hmm. yeah. they end up being um moderators for something that is potentially looks like it's not called this but cambridge analytica it's smart you mm. know mm. um and i thought that was a really interesting way to track time as well as look at you know, they, they have to keep working really hard just to stay on top of paying the rent throughout the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. don't get me started on rent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I can. Oh, uh, no, Gingers I just... I, <laughs> do you want to start? <laughs> yeah, I just... Yeah, I think... Um, yeah, we... I just... I've never understood money. I don't know if it... I come from a house where all... My parents just kept thinking that if we had money we'd be okay you know what I mean like money would solve everything and I think that I took some of that mindset into my into my life and you know this disappointment that hard work doesn't equal money and that we seem to pay the people that work the hardest the least and um it's you know it's constantly I always write because I'm trying to work out things and I'm just constantly confused by money constantly confused by money I just do not understand why we can't just pay everyone a universal basic income and why we can't just yeah I, d- I don't understand it yeah uh, yeah yeah and then what I always yeah. preface that by is saying because I'm dumb but I don't know if I am dumb no, who knows no. <laughs> I, I feel like I feel like part of what the book does is actually um show us what a ridiculous kind of um game it is we're playing and in, in terms of how we how we use money and yeah um, there was another uh, another part that I wanted to discuss and um, or another idea that I think is really interesting in the book and that's this idea of manners. So Peggy and Greta in the in, in the book are um, they're they're divided. That's yeah, so they're the same person who has just mysteriously overnight divided. So when it starts in the first section we learn that I think we learn this in the first section, don't we? Yeah, that overnight the very worst woman, when they talk about the worst woman, they mean 
the most alcoholic women have divided and then so where there was one person there's now two so there was Margaret and there's now Peggy and Greta and this makes um, I mean the title works on many levels but one of the ways in which nothing to see works is that um, it makes it very uncomfortable for people so so they'll they'll see they'll see the two people but they 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 almost don't look at them as two people or um, Peggy and Greta can only have one birth certificate between them, they can never go overseas because there's only one passport. Um, and for Peggy and Greta, this actually works out quite well because they end up really caring for each other, don't they? Whereas another um, a couple of women that they live with, Heidi and Del, hate being divided. They hate, they sort of hate each other. They have this conflict throughout their lives. But so one of the things that crops up out of this is manners. Um, and... So I'll just read the short section, and it says, People didn't like to offend people, and no one knew how not to offend people like Peggy and Greta. They'd have to work at it, and that took effort. And so um, I wondered, this, this comes back to this idea before about you've created this world really where you're kind of looking at manners, which are, I guess, agreed upon rules for how we'll interact. Um, and you've sort of pulled almost back this facade of civilised behaviour and shown us the messy workings underneath. Yeah, so I wondered what, you know, was this part of your intention in this book, to expose this problem of manners and how we hide behind things like manners? And yeah, I think so. It's another thing that I'm really confused about is kind of law and manners, you know, like, oh, this brain can probably help. But, you know, like this idea, like, why do we wear seatbelts or why do we um, speed or why do we um, not shout out, you know, our deepest, darkest thoughts? And I just, yeah, I, I do think that I'm interested in manners because they are so culturally set as well. And, and, and you know, like, again, you know, I, I mean, you know, I've lived a wonderful, privileged life, but this idea of, um, you know, like I lived a certain way, which was not very socially socially acceptable for a long time, and then reintegrating back into life, like trying to work out, oh, is it okay to say this? Is it okay to say that? And, you know, often saying things and seeing people's faces and thinking, oh, that wasn't quite right. And I think that I'm really interested. So I made myself like this set of rules, you know, like I, I and I would ask people, I would say to people, is it okay to say fuck in this situation? They'd say no. And I'd say, is it okay? To, what about this word? And they're like, no. And I'm like, is it okay? Like, um, you know, like what's in the book, you know, how often do I wash my clothes? How often do I wash myself? You know, like, you know, just because of this weird sudden realization after living in a fog for so many years that there were other humans around and that I could hurt them just by, you know, like the wrong thing. And, so yeah, again, it feels like that stuff is very on the surface to me. Like I, I see yeah. it and I'm like, oh yeah, I know what we're doing here. Like yeah. even that thing like where you look down a little bit before you, um, when you finish your sentence, you know, that thing like humans will look down a bit when they finish their sentence. And like I constantly am looking for that so that I don't interrupt people, but also I'm const you know, mindful of that. So yeah, I think... I just, yeah, I think it's, humans are weird. Yeah. Well, I mean, the characters of Peggy and Rita provide a really um, a great way for you to show how we go about learning these rules if we don't know them. 
Yeah. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the division, the splitting of the characters and how that operates in the novel. Because it's sort of, it's a, it's a plot device, it's a way to drive the narrative forward and to um, develop the characters, but it also sort of operates as a metaphor. Yeah. Um, so do, do you want to explain the division <laughs> and, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I missed that out of my elevator pitch, you'll notice. Probably the most important thing that was... Yeah, right. I, I shouldn't. I, yeah, I shouldn't be left to elevator pitches. Mm -hmm. I think that's what's true. Um, yeah. So for me, the first image that came to my mind was this this idea of two identical people, not identical like twins, but absolutely identical, like to the point where they were uncanny. I'm quite interested in the uncanny. So, for me, the way. Yeah, like I, I, at first I thought of it as a doubling, but more and more I started thinking of it as the cell division, you know, like this, this division of self in a way that made it possible for us to externalize some of those caring things that we do for each other. Like it was a way to externalize our relationship with ourselves. And um, I was quite interested in that. And that's how I think it operates in there. But also, um, you know, in my mind there, you know, like, I have a certain idea about the physics and how it how it happened and why it happened, um, but I I've talked to a few. Thank you to the people who read my book. I've talked to a few people about their theories on it, and I think some of the other theories that are coming out are way better. You know, for me, it's just like this ambivalent kind of force that wants to experiment and see what happens if you split two people apart. You know, and then put them back together, and then you know. But I think that yeah, that's yeah. Does that make sense? Probably not. But yeah, that's just thoughts. Well, to me, it also played into this idea that the way that we're creating a society where there are, there's just many injustices and many inequalities, it's like a stupid game, you know. Yeah. It's been controlled. Like, but who's controlling? We're controlling it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. So, totally. Yeah. Um, also, oh, can I just yeah. say one more thing? Like, the other thing I thought was I was thinking about um, how little um, – how less female presenting and female identifying um, people, folk, actually all gender minorities, how much less they get paid, how much more likely they are to get beaten up and raped, how much more likely they are to, um, you know, lose, 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 lose. And I just, in my mind, it was this kind of weird economic um, problem that if there were two of you, would it be possible, do you know what I mean? <laughs> if two of you were working, would it at all be possible? If two of you were like looking out, you know, like if you were walking down the road and one of you was searching to make sure no one was coming at you, you know, like is that going to be safer and easier? So, I mean, part of it was that kind of equation as well. Mm. That's cool. That's very interesting. I feel like that care, I mean, you've got the, um, you're dealing with addiction and just the constant hard work they have to do every single day to stay sober. Beautifully dealt with. Um, but I feel like that care is a really important theme in this book. And I actually find that it, it's potentially the most hopeful book you've written because of that. Um, oh, sorry. Yay. Yeah. Hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they have Diane, who's their support person. But do you want to talk a little bit about that care? If you, if you I don't know, maybe you feel you have already, but. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I think, I think, um, yeah, gosh, I don't know. Um, I just love that word. Like, I was thinking about it so much. Like, for ages, the book was just called Care. And I just love that idea of how we, 
look after each other you know what I mean and like how we don't look after each other and and again you know talking about that work that we legitimize and work that we don't legitimize like so little of our caring work is paid for you know what I mean and like and then when we externalize that care work you know like when we when we take that care work out of a unit of you know out of a community we pay it poorly again you know what I mean and and like it just I just like, could there be anything more important than looking after each other? Maybe there is, I don't know. But it, yeah, I think that it's extremely interesting when you start looking at how we value care in our, in our communities, in our, well, society. That sounds better, but yeah. And also how we learn to do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's yeah. a lot about that. Mm, yeah. yeah, and actually that it's quite hard work mm. as well. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Oh, thanks, Pat. That's okay. Um, Okay, I'm going to ask you some questions now, Renova. It's then, like a job interview. I know. Yeah. Ooh. Let you know. Let you know. Yeah, comparing and job. Yeah. Good job. yeah. Um, so again, I'm just going to start with a little, a little bit that um, really s struck me. So um, Brandon's book is set in four parts. Um, there's um, so there's this, this terrible um, gang rape that happens at a party with very drunk teenagers and um, the novel sort of falls into before and after. Um, it's really cleverly structured and um, so the first part we have this rugby game, um, first 15 final on a Saturday, the party um, at a wool shed, which is where this um, terrible piece of violence happens. The aftermath of that, um, in these two private schools, Simpsons is private as well as it? it's the yeah. girls' school. Yeah. So there's a boys' school and a girls' school, and then the final, um, the final piece, which I just think is a is a total tour de force in this novel, is um, told from the point of view of Priya, who's um, the young woman who is raped. Um, so. But I'm just going to read a little section from the, just just at party when the young men are starting to drink. And there's Richie, who's the um, um, Samoan player who's been, he's like a scholarship boy, he's been brought into St Luke's because he's a good rugby player. Um, a, a private, you know, expensive private school. Anyway, there's a young man, Fitzy, who's talking to him at the party. And um, you know, trying to make conversation about the Tongan rugby team. I guess they they will assume that that Richie's Tongan, or they get him to do the haka. You know. Um, anyway, Fitzy says. Um, anyway, anyway, I just want you to know. I know how tough it must be for you at St Luke's. You know, Richie tried not to look uncomfortable. You know, Richie nodded. Thanks, appreciate it. Look, you know, I don't see race. You know, we're all people. When I bleed, I bleed the same colour as you. You know. Richie nodded. He started taking bigger sips. Use the excuse of a piss, but he couldn't leave now. Fitzy would read that as him being offended. He'd have to listen. And there are many moments um, throughout the, this book where there's this sort of... You, you can see this young man trying to make conversation and and just, just coming from a society where this casual racism and casual misogyny is just... A, just woven throughout the fabric um and I think yeah I wonder when you were starting to to starting out to write this novel was that your intention to show how how we create these conditions to allow the terrible violence that does occur in the novel yeah. and I've, I've always been interested in the way structures are created in society and um 
all of my books have looked um, at issues from a structural perspective, I guess. And one of the things that I was really fascinated in this book was to show the how structures are built in really, really small ways through words, through kind of microaggressions, through um, little kind of moments which seem pretty innocuous and actually make it really hard to push back against because you also don't want to be reacting against every single one of those that you ever encounter. But the way they build on build build and build to become something much more definitive and much more difficult. Um, but it's always been interesting in mind. My, I, I did my MA in essentially in discourse theory and the way frameworks of talking about particular minorities are created <laughs> through language and through words um, and how you almost create a kind of using kind of Foucault's words of a, a genealogy of uh, and a history of talking about a particular group of people but through very small moments and that just keeps building and building and building and um, so I, I was interested in the way in, in this book and exploring how in these kind of exclusive private situations how these little things help normalize essentially kind of a bigger structural problem yeah yeah well it's, i mean you do that beautifully because you know um just as a reader you feel this accumulation and it's awful it's horrific you know um i mean class plays a huge part in this novel as well um because it's set in a you know private boys school and you see how money protects the the young men um i mean if you know they're criminals um um, and how if you don't come from money, the way Richie doesn't, Richie is a young man who takes part in the um, rape, um, you're, you're basically on your own. And I just wondered if you want to talk a little bit about how class does operate in the novel and that, that intersection with race, I guess, with Richie, because it's very clear that by the end of the novel that Richie will be on his own and pretty much hung out to dry, if they can hang him out to dry as the, they will, yeah. Um, I think one of the things that I was always interested in, and it comes from both a class and a race perspective, is how precarious you feel in situations where you have much less power than the people you're surrounded by. Um, and at the moment that you make a mistake, um, you're far more likely to be discarded or blamed or thrown to the wolves than you would if you had the power or had the ability to fall up like a lot of people who have privilege do. Um, and in some respects, it kind of reflected a little bit of my background. I went to a private school but I grew up in Nainai with um in a kind of economically precarious position and I was always kind of jumping between these two worlds so I'd um go to school surrounded by people who were who were very privileged and who would end up who are in, who are fine now but um are they in that kind of success um whereas um, I was also kind of aware that no matter how much I achieved and how well I did, that something could easily topple over purely from a mistake that I make. So there's that, there's that kind of tension that you feel both either racially or if you um, don't have that kind of economic uh, base um, that often kind of puts you on edge in a, in a lot of social interactions and a lot of kind of places that you're in. Mm -hmm. And just, yeah, that idea that, you know... Richie's probably not going to get a second chance, is he? That's right. Yeah. Even though, yeah, towards the end of the novel, he sort of tries to make amends, doesn't he? Tries he? He's the only, yeah. he's the only kid that does, yeah. Um, so Priya's, Priya's voice, you know, being at the, um, in the last section of the novel, um, feels just so absolutely right in a, in a kind of form way, but also in a, well, I suppose, yeah, form and, um, 
the story that was so intertwined. But um, just hearing her voice is so important for the reader and hearing about the injustices from her point of view, the name calling she gets. I mean, this is a girl who's been through a terrible um, rape and is, she's been, you know, she's been called <laughs> terrible names. Um, even her friends aren't standing up for her. Um, yeah, we get to feel her anger. And I just wondered how you went about writing that section because I imagine it would have been a very difficult piece to write and also <coughs> potentially um, as a man putting yourself into a young woman's point of view. Yeah, do you want to explain about how you went about kind of getting into her character? And, yeah, yeah. It, it was a really difficult section to write and I'm also aware of the kind of discourse that's happening about should should you be writing about experiences that aren't your own or that aren't um, aren't something that you can kind of own, I guess. And so I'm very nervous about that. And I was very nervous right from the upset whether I could and whether I should. Um, and hopefully I'd justify it, but uh, I'm also kind of aware if people want to say you shouldn't have done that or that you did it incorrectly, then that's a criticism I just have to take uh, and accept. Um, but it, it was, it, it took a lot of, well, I felt like I had to have it in the book. You can't write a book uh, about uh, sexual violence and trauma and not have the, the point of view of the victim, I think, now. Um, and you also can't um, talk about um, some of the ideas that I was working through in the book without without her voice being being present. So. I knew I had to do it, um, but I had to kind of figure out a way of, of, of doing it. And essentially what happened was I waited till I felt like I had the voice and then just went for it. So I kind of wrote, um, I pretty much wrote that that section in two weeks um, yeah. when I was in Toronto with, mm. with you. Um, mm. And it was, I felt having that kind of time just to focus on that and focus on that voice gave me, gave it a unified characteristic, which I perhaps... Yeah. didn't necessarily need to write the, the other parts of the book that the rest of the books in, in third person and jumping between the various characters um and actually probably as, as, in terms of the edit the first three sections got uh, have been edited a lot from that from the original first draft mm -hmm. but i don't think part four has changed mm -hmm. all that much from, mm -hmm. from it's a little bit like in uh, in my previous book sodden where i had that this one sentence which lasted about 20 pages that was pretty much uh, a a first draft type sentence yeah um and i sometimes think that the energy and the rawness that you get um can you, you try and hold on to a voice that you have with that first draft and that's what i tried to do with that section yeah i well i think it really it really does come through um, it's very interesting from a craft perspective actually that you you need to sort of get yourself ready to do and that can take months but yeah. you can actually get it done the work done quite quickly once you're in the right circumstance yeah once you feel like you've got that voice and you want to feel like you know what you want to say that you want her to say uh, that was kind of how I um, approached it yeah and have you had anyone say oh I don't buy that uh not yet but yeah. maybe people are too polite I'm not sure yeah yeah I'm sure it'll come yeah um there's another little section I wanted to read um and this is from Priya's Priya's um point of view um, so Pri is the daughter of two um, Tamil Sri Lankan parents and um, we really see the pressure she comes like um, under both before the rape and after the rape 
um, and just how kind of prejudice works by tiny cuts. But this was um, one of the things we were going to discuss was how how Priya has got to navigate. We see you navigating white institutions and spaces, but you've you've got a bit in here about. Oh no, that's not the section. It's something about the rules. Oh, here it is. Sorry. Um, we and she says that her friend Teresa's come over, and Teresa's sort of the one person at her school who's um, who's looking out for her, and and you know, sometimes misguidedly, but um, is trying her best. And but Priya reflects on how Teresa can come in and she wants to protest outside the boys' school and she wonders how Teresa can be so confident and and um, Priya says, I played everything by the rules and I never thought twice about it. And now the rules were something that I couldn't trust in. The rules wouldn't do anything to protect me. Yeah, and I wondered if you just wanted to talk a little bit about that. That just the added bloody difficulty of navigating those white institutions and the rules which you know they're not protecting anyone like her no and and the rules are entirely flexible and yeah. uh entirely yeah. there for the benefit of those who have power of them yeah. um and i mean because one of the, the way the way the book structured is that um in the first three parts prayer is constructed as an object um in exactly the same way that um uh, victims are constructed as objects in the judicial system and in the media and in the way we talk about sexual violence. And then in the final section, she becomes a subject. But by that point, um, she's kind of doomed because the narrative has already been crafted around her so that she's got no real ability to kind of express herself. Um, and then when you throw in on top of that race and class, then it becomes an even more enveloping um, idea. So that kind of um, the structure that we're building around prayer, I think, um, make it even harder and the fact that she is a non-white woman makes it even more difficult um mm -hmm. and that was the kind of i guess the the pessimism which structured the book but then also i was interested in the idea of testimony and the way testimony can build solidarity and the way um you can hearing stories and hearing people um people's accounts can actually mean that you don't feel like you're alone and that you're not the only person having to go through this um and that was I guess that's the tension within her account and yeah. knowing that despite everything and despite the institution that she's having to try and fight against, um, this section gives her a voice which hopefully might help other people if she if they hear heard her heard her account. Yeah. Well I th for me as a reader it certainly acts as a sort of pressure release, you know, on, on the on the rest of the novel. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah she's a wonderful character. I, I think also just that flexibility and it kind of ties a little bit to what um, Pip's queries about money is. I think a lot of power is actually just about flexibility and taking advantage of situations and yeah. um, money operates in that exact same way um, and access and, and, and those kind of structures aren't actually these fixed ideological things which exist and you can um, uh, uh, act in a particular way. They, they actually end up being pretty light-footed and, and ensuring that whoever has the power maintains it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thanks, Look, I'll um, open it up. got a few minutes left. Um, does, has anyone here got any questions that they want to ask Pip or Renovan or both of them about their novels or writing? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to talk about 
Well, um, getting into Priya's voice, did you sort of have practice runs at it and you'd try and write her voice and then think that that isn't working? How, how, I mean, I'm interested how you, how you find a voice that isn't naturally yours. Um, I didn't have any practice runs, uh, but I spend a lot of time, I often do this thing where I don't start writing until I'm desperate to write, um, where I do lots of planning and lots of thinking and lots of um, kind of getting my thoughts marshaled and then when I write, it's it's all on. Um, and I'm not sure if it's similar, but there's a kind of real kind of, by the time you're actually ready to write, you're just like desperate to, to get it, um, get it on paper. So that's kind of the approach I did for that one. Um, some of the other sections were a bit more, you kind of work it out as you go, but that one was definitely a... Um, I think I've got a voice. I think I've got an opening sentence, and then just and then just started. Were you conscious of listening to teenage girls and just sort of your radar was up more than? I, I was, yep, and, and also um, imagining myself as the kind of the method acting approach, I suppose, which is slightly dubious as a concept, but um, yeah, that that idea of how would I react if that, if that was me? Um, so yeah, a lot of kind of trying to listen as well as I can. Hi, Brandon. I'm, I I picked up Spriggs and you actually, and I thought, oh, no, it's not really great. And I, I came at it at home and picked it up and started to get into it and uh, couldn't stop and found myself laughing out loud, particularly in sections about the um, rugby and the headmasters and so on. And the, um, I love the satire, and it's funny. And um, there's an interesting contrast in the book between the I think the warmth of the Tamil family and the and the rest of it, which is not so. Um, it's pretty pretty angry and pretty scathing about um, that whole private school sort of culture and everything else and rugby and everything else. And is that where did all that come from? Um, I think I was angry at the situation which Priya found herself in and used that to structure my thoughts um, as to how that might play out. Um, I think, I mean, in general, my books have a kind of scabrous um, satirical tone anyway. And they, uh, this, uh, while this is a particularly grim book, I mean, it kind of fits in with a lot of what I've written in the past. Um, and maybe it's the idea of just being, I've always been a kind of politically minded person and uh, then just apply that lens into this particular situation. Um, I also wanted to write about sport. I love um, love sport as a uh, I, I played sport I, I still play sport it's um, but I'm also interested in the dynamics and the structures and the ideas that it, um, that surround it um, and that the good parts can also also have these kind of dark uh, horrible effects uh, but in some respects I mean I know the rugby has been kind of focused on it and it's my fault because my first hundred pages is the rugby game um, but um, um, but it's also kind of a MacGuffin um, it, it's there and it gets it's used to get all the characters in the one, one place but afterwards I don't really care what happened in the rugby game um, it's more about the way the boys have been set up I, think I felt really true to me and I, I went to a, a rural school that was heavily focused on first 15 you know as a reader who didn't play sport it was not <laughs> and it felt really just horrifyingly real to me yeah a lot of that yeah a lot of my friends the way it. they talk to each other yeah awful yeah I mean I, I, I guess I was first 11 in cricket and football and so I'm, the sporting way people talk is quite 
similar in the competitiveness and all that sort of yeah. stuff. Um, and also I'd spend a lot of my Saturday afternoons watching the first 15 because my friends were in the team. Um, and so being on the sideline of games and yeah. hearing the way people talked and the homophobia and the misogyny and the um, the kind of the way people interacted, I think, was something that came through in the book. Yeah. I wonder actually if I could just pick up on that because I had one other question which was to both of you because you're both very interested in um, ideas around inequality and injustice and you know lots of writers are really interested in big ideas but there's a difference between being really interested in a sort of raw idea and synthesizing it into fiction and I just wonder how you how you go about doing that how you I mean that's that's a really big question I guess like I mean you're talking about prayer and voice came first but for you Pip did the character situation come as a way for you to kind of begin to be able to talk about these other big ideas I don't know mm. how do you go about you go. Uh, <laughs> um, I said something years ago which at the time I thought was just a really smart thing to say but I think was actually true and I didn't know it was true um, that often I'm writing to try and work things out that confuse me you know like and um, nothing confuses me more than power inequality yeah, yeah. It's, sorry. Oh, I sound so lame. But you like, you know, nothing interests me more in why some people can't eat and other people buy, you know, five hundred dollars worth of wine, five hundred dollar bottles of wine. And um, I think that, you know, what I think, you know, th there's a thing that I was trying to work out in here. It was, you know, like what, which was basically around that idea of, you know, is two of me enough to get equal share is three of me enough to get equal share I think it even came I think I read something horrendous which was talking about journalism actually and it was saying that this many people in your community dead equals this many people in the neighboring suburb equals this many people in a neighboring city equals this many people in the neighboring country you know like um and yeah it just I don't know yeah I think it's always at my forefront. I have no interest in writing anything that's not, I was going to say political, but everything we do is political, isn't it? Like the only reason we think that some things aren't political is because they're closer to the, to the mainstream and the people with power. You know, that's when we say that it's not political. But yeah, I don't know. What do you think? I, I think Help me. <laughs> no, I feel exactly the same. I write because I want to figure out why does this thing happen or what is the case. Well, why have you chosen fiction and not journalism? Like you are doing something with that material. Mm, I guess mm, that's what mm, I'm interested mm, in. Mm, How are you mm. turning that material into? Um, I don't know. I, why I, drama? Um, Maybe. I think I got carried away after getting a few laughs at Salient when I was in, um, okay. at university. That people thought that I was a funny writer. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I think um, my first book was also meant to be kind of just like a diary of uh, a trip through West Africa. And mm. I was being mm. very, very defamatory of my friends. So I thought if I pretended that it was fiction, I could get away with it. Yeah. Um, and I have become a novelist ever since. Yeah. Um, a lot of my life has happened by accident and by um, <laughs> being unplanned and I suspect this is just another part of it. Yeah, it's a mystery. Yeah. And can yeah. I just, sorry, can I just say one more thing? Um, can I just put in a plug for, I think fiction can be more truthful sometimes. Yeah. Like I think, I, I think that, um, yeah. 
I really, really believe that and I probably can't put together an awesome argument right now, but I just think having tried a lot of other forms, I think that I love William Brandt once we were teaching and he said someone asked him what the difference was between nonfiction and fiction and he said in nonfiction there's a there's an agreement between the reader and the writer that everything is true. In fiction there's no agreement that it's true or false. And that just yeah, I, I think I I would I don't know. I, I do love journalism and I love nonfiction and I do think that there is some weird truth that fiction can get to that those things get to in a different way. God. Ren, I'm just interested in whether you've taken your book or had a response from the kind of traditional rugby communities mm. and, and what that response has been. Uh, I've had a few people who were X Fest 15 and um, Murdoch's, uh, my publisher is X Fest 15. <laughs> um, and uh, seems to be they, they recognise the locker room talk and they recognise um, the kind of rites and rituals. Um, so yeah, I think so far it's been positive. Um, I, again, I'm not sure whether some because also I never played rugby, so there might be someone saying, "Oh, well, you uh, you, you called the the second five the centre at that particular point, or you know so, something like that." But um, yeah, I'm I'm hopeful that I um, kind of captured that rugby side. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, look, we're gonna have to wrap it up. Um, but I just want to say thank you to both of you and. And yeah, just to say yay the novel because what a marvelous, marvelous containers you've created for so many ideas and um, there's yeah both of the novels have moments of real humour, um, you know both of them actually move me to tears at points, so um, yeah well done both of you and um, please buy a copy and both of the authors are here they can sign and if there's a question you wanted to ask but you're were too shy to ask it, you could ask them. So yeah, and thank you so much. So thanks, Kirsten. Yeah.